All right, so we're continuing tonight this uh, series about God's grace. What I'm trying to do is point out five big teachings of the Bible related to God's grace that are kind of controversial, or at least they have become controversial. Although, hopefully, as you began to see last week, they're thoroughly scriptural. Uh, they are based upon the very clear teaching of the Bible. In fact, I'm, I'm tempted to stop at this point and just ask you, uh, what did you think as I read that out loud? Um, I, I don't want to go down that rabbit trail because I know there are many thoughts, and I hope that I will address many of your thoughts uh, just because I have experienced most of those thoughts myself before. But I, I am sure that all of us would have to say uh, it's not that what Paul is saying is unclear. It's just that what Paul is saying is unpopular. Uh, because actually Romans 9 might be the clearest thing <laughs> that you can read in almost any part of the Bible, and particularly in the book of Romans where many of his ideas are quite complex. This one's not so complex. It's just, well, challenging, isn't it? Uh, the doctrine tonight that we want to look at is unconditional election. We said last week there are five doctrines. They are best remembered by the acronym TULIP, perhaps. That's one way to remember them. Uh, total depravity, which is why we need sovereign grace. We talked about that last week. Unconditional elections, the U. It's how sovereign grace was conceived by God before the world was made. Uh, limited atonement, which is how uh, sovereign grace was merited. Uh, irresistible grace, which is how sovereign grace is applied. And then there's perseverance of the saints, which is how sovereign grace is preserved. Uh, how we continue to uh, stay in God's sovereign grace throughout the rest of our lives and into eternity. Uh, remember when I read from you, uh, for you last week from J.I. Packer? Hopefully it fired you up and got you excited to hear more, did it? Uh, he was writing, remember, in 1959, and he said that the biggest problem with the evangelical church of his day, uh, and by the way, J.I. Packer is a British guy who spent most of his life in Canada. And so he's not just writing about the American scene, he's writing about just the whole evangelical, especially English-speaking world uh, of the time. He says the biggest problem in the evangelical world was we have forgotten the actual gospel, and we've substituted it for a false gospel, which has lots of truth to it, but it has just enough error in it to kind of undo the very things about the truth that have the greatest tendency to make you more like Christ. Remember that list that he gave us? Uh, this new gospel does not produce deep humility, deep reverence, deep repentance, a spirit of worship, or a concern for the church. Whereas the old uh, gospel, the gospel that we, I believe, find in the Bible, produced those things almost automatically. Well, listen to what uh, J.I. Packer says after the part that I read to you last week. Uh, From this change of interest has sprung a change of content, for the new gospel has, in effect, reformulated the biblical message in supposed interests of, quote, helpfulness. Remember, he talked about that last week, being helpful to people versus glorifying to God. Accordingly, the themes of man's natural inability to believe, of God's free election being the ultimate cause of salvation, and of Christ dying specifically for his sheep are not preached. These doctrines, it would be said, are not, quote, helpful. 
they would not drive sinners to despair by suggesting to them that it is not in their own power to be saved through Christ. The possibility that such despair might be exactly what they need is not even considered. Right? Uh, it is taken for granted that it cannot be uh, because it is so shattering to our self-esteem. And hasn't self-esteem become king uh, in the world? However this may be, and we shall say more about it later, uh, the result of these omissions is that part of the biblical gospel is now preached as if it were the whole of that gospel. And listen to this. A half-truth masquerading as the whole truth becomes a complete untruth. Let me say that again. A half-truth masquerading as the whole truth becomes a complete untruth. Thus, we appeal to men as if they had all the ability to receive Christ at any time. We speak of his redeeming work as if he had done no more by dying than making it possible for us to save ourselves by believing. We speak of God's love as if it were no more than a general willingness to receive any who will turn and trust of their own power. And we depict the Father and the Son not as sovereignly active in drawing sinners to themselves, but as waiting in quiet impotence at the door of our hearts for us to let them in. It is undeniable this is how we preach. Perhaps this is what we really believe. But it needs to be said with emphasis that this set of half-twisted, of twisted half-truths is something other than the biblical gospel. The Bible is against us when we preach in this way. And the fact that such preaching has become almost standard practice among us only shows us how urgent it is that we should renew, review this matter. To recover the old, authentic, biblical gospel and to bring our preaching and practice back into line with it is perhaps our most pre pressing present need. 1959. 2023. How important is it? How much more has self-esteem come to reign? And almost every doctrine from the Bible has been laid at the feet of self-esteem for self-esteem to adjudge whether it should be believed or preached anymore. I think that is not only dishonoring to God, but it's detrimental to the human soul. Because the human soul needs to know its place. And its place is not on the throne. And there is nothing better to learn your place than to thinking about this theme of election, as uncomfortable as it is. And I admit it is. And so let's look at this passage. It's a glorious one. Although it's hard, there are three things Paul does here. First of all, he shows us his attitude as he approaches the topic. He's got a broken heart, and that's important. We don't want to skip past that. Secondly, he teaches us the doctrine straight up out of Scripture with no frills, just very good economy of words. He just states what the Bible teaches. And then thirdly, he answers objections that he knows you have. And he knows I have because everybody has always had these objections to this teaching from the time the world was first made. All right, so let's look at those three in, in turn. First of all, the attitude of Paul, which ought to be our attitude, because maybe there's no other doctrine in the Bible that needs you to approach it with a certain attitude more than this one. Uh, unfortunately, this doctrine has received much um, criticism in part because the people who have held it have sometimes held it in, a, in an unchristlike or unbiblical manner. 
um, have almost used it as an intellectual curiosity to spike other people for not thinking as intellectually as they do, right? And that's not what we want to do. Certainly that's not what Paul did. Notice in verses 1 to 5, as he approaches election, what is his heart like? What's his attitude? Sorrowful. Absolutely sorrowful. I mean, notice what he says. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness. He really wants them to know that he, he believes he's telling the honest truth about himself. When he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I'm brokenhearted. Now, why is Paul brokenhearted? Because people do not know Jesus, especially because his fellow Israelites, by and large, did not believe in Jesus. To him, that was the greatest of tragedies, and it was something that he, it puzzled him uh, why that would be the case. And if you look at the list of things he gives you there, you can kind of see where he's coming from. I mean, of all the people of the world, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament was chosen as God's own people. Israel was the church on earth. It was the people of God. They alone had these things. The adoption. They were called the sons and daughters of God. They were taught to live as sons and daughters. They had the glory. Remember, God appeared to them so many times in the cloud and in the fire, and he spoke to them as a man speaks with his friends. They had the glory of God. They had the covenants uh, with Abraham, with Moses, with David. I and mean, these covenants nourished them from the time they were born until the time they died for generation after generation. They had the giving of the law. What other nation on earth had God actually come down to earth and write with his own hand the Ten Commandments on stone? None. Only Israel got that privilege. They had the worship. Don't you know that in order for us to know how to worship God, God must tell us. But why is that? Because we as human beings are very, very backward when it comes to God. We have no idea how to approach God or how to worship him apart from him. Well, the Israelites had it. All the pagans were out there building statues, bowing to them and sacrificing their children to false gods. They had no clue. But Israel had the worship that God was pleased with. They had promises galore. And, of course, they had a family tree to die for. They had the patriarchs the, you know, as their fathers. And, y'all, they had Jesus Christ as their brother. Uh, according to the flesh, Jesus was a Jewish man. Of course, he was born of his mother Mary. And yet, how many of them believed? Not the majority. I don't know exactly how many, by the way. I don't have a number. Paul, of course, is one of them. The disciples were others. And we know there were thousands at least that were in the church at Jerusalem. And everywhere the gospel went, there was a small group of Jews who joined the church. But by and large, the Jewish people rejected their Messiah when he came. Paul says, I am absolutely heartbroken over that fact. I could wish, notice he doesn't say, I do wish, or even that he does wish or can wish, but that he could wish that he himself were accursed and cut off from Christ if it would mean they would come to Christ. 
Now, you know, he knows that, that can't, that's not how it works. You, you can't give yourself up in order to save another person. That doesn't work that way. Only Jesus can give his life to save you or anybody else. But notice how he says it, I could wish. In other words, he, he felt, and he was sincere about this, he felt he hurt so badly for his fellow kinsmen who didn't know Jesus, so badly that he was willing, he thought, to give up his place in the kingdom if it meant all of them would come in. Now, I don't know about you. Is there anybody you would say that about? Like, I will give up my place in heaven if it would mean they would go. You've never met a more loving, concerned, zealous evangelist than Paul. Never. In this way, Paul is a lot like Jesus, right? Because, of course, Jesus could give up his life in heaven to give us one there. And he did, in fact, do that. Paul is just becoming more like Jesus in his desire to see people saved. So notice that the doctrine of unconditional election or predestination for, for Paul is not something he's writing about in an ivory academic tower. Uh, he's not uh, thinking about it as an intellectual problem to unravel or some way to win a debate at Thanksgiving dinner with your family. Uh, that's not what he's thinking about. What is he thinking about? I want people saved. Not everybody is saved. Why? How could it be that when some people hear about Jesus, they, they embrace him with all head over heels, and other people hear about Jesus, and it's like, yawn, okay, when can I get out of here? I don't need this, and I don't want it, and I don't care about it. What's behind that mystery? How could someone look at Christ, whom he describes as God over all, blessed forever, and say, yawn or yuck or no thank you? Answer, it's not because you were better than them. Answer, it's not because they're worse than you. Answer, God's purpose is being worked out in every person's life. A purpose that he made in eternity past, before the world was made, and a purpose that, as he says in verse 6, has not and cannot fail. That's where the doctrine of election comes from. Now be careful, please. Uh, you know, there's this joke that when people first hear about this, they enter into what we call the cage stage. And what we mean by that is when someone first becomes a Calvinist or a believer in predestination, they want to tell everybody about it and they want to you know, yell at everybody who doesn't believe in it and put them down and make them seem small. It's called the cage stage. Don't do that, okay? This doctrine is not for that. Uh, it's very irreverent, actually, to treat something so holy and awesome and high as a mystery with that kind of selfish flippancy. Um, in fact, our own confession of faith, Westminster Confession, chapter 3, verse 8, says, this doctrine of the high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care. Special prudence and care. So that men, attending to the will of God revealed in the word, and yielding obedience thereto, may from the certainty of their calling be assured of their eternal election, so that they can praise God, reverence God, admire God with humility, diligence, and consolation. Not so that you can go around and... 
beat people with the Calvin stick or the Romans 9 stick, as I would prefer to call it, because Calvin didn't invent this. Paul wrote it long before him. Have you ever been to a place where the mood and the, the atmosphere was just reverent and you could just feel it when you got there? It was just respectful? And it would have been completely out, you know, out of order for anyone to do anything except be very respectful. Uh, I, I think of two places, or actually three that I've been that are like that, and I'll tell you about a couple of them. One, Ground Zero in New York City. Um, we, we were there several years ago, Stacy and I, uh, at the memorial. And all the hustle and bustle and loudness of New York City, when you get into that place, right downtown, it just goes so quiet. And people are not chit-chatting. People are not laughing, of course. They're not cutting up. They're not criticizing. <laughs> They're just sort of standing in awe at that day and what that day entailed. Another place I went was the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem, which some of y'all who are going with us to Israel will get to go to, probably. Maybe. I don't know. I haven't checked our itinerary in a while. But we went there last time I went, and it's abs you can imagine it, right? Absolutely hush. This summer, I was up at Memphis for our General Assembly, and I went up to the uh, Lorraine Motel where Martin Luther King Jr. was shot. And they've, turned, they, they've preserved it the way it was that day, and they've made it into a National Civil Rights Museum. Absolutely hush. Right? There are some things that you just cannot treat lightly. And let me tell you, the sovereignty of God and the salvation of men, women, boys and girls, and angels is not something to treat lightly. It is holy. It is awesome. It is way beyond us. You should expect to encounter things that make you go, what, what, whoa. And you should be ready to just be quiet and think about a God that is so much bigger and greater than you. That was Paul's attitude. He was heartbroken. And there are some things in the Bible, in fact, many things, that you cannot understand without a broken heart. If you ain't got a broken heart, broken over your sin, you won't get it, right? I mean, you just won't. This is, and by the way, this is why this is not the doctrine to start with when you're teaching somebody to come to Christ, right? You don't, this is not the first track you hand them. And it's not because you're trying to hide it. It's just, they're not, I mean, people, you're not ready for it until you understand you're saved by Christ alone, by his death on the cross, it's only then that you really can stop and think, okay, how did I get in here? Was it me? Was it something that was different about me from my kinsmen according to the flesh who don't believe? What is it? It's only then that you can understand it. And you've got to be sufficiently heartbroken. I mean, you can't think, wow, I'm in. I'm so awesome. You know, my neighbors who don't believe in Jesus, terrible people. <laughs> if you have that attitude, election is going to turn into like a weapon. And instead of thinking of yourself as elect, you're going to think of yourself as elite. And actually, it's the opposite thing. I mean, elect does not mean elite. It means elect by grace, not by works, as Paul goes on to say. And so reverence for God, desire for Christ, compassion for fellow sinners, broken heart over our own sin, that's how we have to approach such a high topic. Uh, we cannot approach it with any less 
sense of heaviness and weightiness. All right, so secondly, what is the teaching? I mean, we've been dancing around it. Uh, Paul in verses 6 to 13 just gives it to you straight. And again, I don't think there's anything unclear in what he says, if I'm honest. Um, it takes a lot of twisting to get him to say anything different than what he's saying. It's just very plain. He says, it's not as though the word of God has failed. Um, God's plan, God's covenant of grace plan has not been hindered at all. And so he looks around and says, all right, here I am, a Jew. I've become a Christian. All of my fellow Jews should have become Christians because he's, there, he's our Messiah. He was born of us. We had the inside, you know, cheat code to understand Jesus, and yet they're not saved, and I am. Okay, what has happened? Why have they been left out and I've been brought in? God's word has not failed. It's not as though, do not read the Bible this way. God tried to save Israel, but you know, he just couldn't. And so he moved on to us raggedy Gentiles. Neither should you think, God's tried to save me and all my friends, but I was the only one that he could manage. The rest of them he couldn't manage. Don't think that way. And I know by instinct, most Christians don't think that way, right? Until they start talking about election. Then they start talking that way, even though inside your heart you know it's true that God doesn't pick people based on their relative goodness compared to other people. He doesn't do that. God's word does not and has not failed. He has a purpose that he is working out in every person's life, which only he knows. And whether someone receives Christ and is saved or, or does not receive Christ and, and is not saved, God's purpose is still equally working out, just in two different directions. And so Paul explains. Uh, he goes back to Abraham, and he says, Not everybody who came from Abraham really belongs to Abraham. Not everybody who is an outward member of the nation of Israel really is a believer. Nor was it ever true, and nor is it true today. Um, not every church member is of the church. And I don't care what denomination you're in, it's always true, right? Not every church member is actually a believer. Um, it's not that we purpose, purposefully want people who aren't believers to be in the church. It's just that's the way it is. Um, God is working under, under the surface. We can only work at the surface level. That's all we can do as human beings. God... God deals with the heart, and we can't always know what's in the heart. In fact, most of the time, we don't know. And so not all Abraham's children were truly his children. Instead, God made this announcement to Abraham. It's through Isaac that your offspring will be named. Isaac is mine. Ishmael was the son you produced by your own efforts. Remember the story? He couldn't have a child with Sarah, and so he got the handmaid Hagar, and he produced Ishmael. And Ishmael, he thought, was going to be the heir, the one to receive the promises of God. But God said, no, it's Isaac. Isaac's not born yet, but yet it's still Isaac because Isaac is going to be a child of promise. He's going to be born by a miracle of God. And therefore, he's one who's going to actually inherit, not the one who was born by human effort. Verse 8, this means, he tells us plainly, this means that it is not uh, the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but it's the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. In other words, what makes a person a Christian? 
It is not the flesh that makes you a Christian. It's the spirit and the promise of God working inwardly within your heart that makes you a Christian, not the flesh. That means nothing that the flesh does makes any difference in who is a Christian and who is not a Christian. The only determinative factor at the end of the day is God's purpose and God's promise. He gives another example uh, after verse 9, he says in verse 10, not only so, but in the next generation, Rebekah had two children. You'll remember she had, was pregnant with twins through Isaac. And before they were ever born, therefore before they had even done a single thing, good or bad, God knew them, God knew their whole story, God knew their whole history. And so he was able to say to Rebekah, the older will serve the younger, the opposite of what normally is the case. It'll be the younger, it'll be Jacob that inherits, not Esau. Now, why did God announce that to Rebekah? Look at verse 11, and you can see it for yourself. Why did God announce that to Rebekah ahead of time? That the purpose of election might continue and that it might be shown that it's from God who calls that people become believers. Uh, people inherit God's promises by God's own calling, not by works at all. In fact, when we talked about Genesis, um, remember we went through the whole book of Genesis for a very long time? Uh, we talked about... Um, Isaac, or excuse me, Jacob and Esau. And I think a good case could be made that in some ways Esau might have been a little bit better person than Jacob. I mean, at a human level, Jacob was naturally a scoundrel. And yet God decided to show Jacob a mercy that he did not choose to show Esau. That does not mean that God did not show Esau any mercy or any grace, because we can read the story and go back and watch the replay. He showed Esau plenty of, of mercy, and he blessed Esau, and he gave Esau plenty of opportunities. Esau steadfastly refused every opportunity. And in that, what Paul is saying is that God already not only knew that, but had already determined to use that for his purpose. His purpose was, verse 13, to love Jacob and to hate Esau. That might be the toughest verse of all. Verse 13. What in the world do you do with verse 13? God hating folks? What in the world? Well, Paul, it must be noted, Paul is quoting from the Bible there. That's why it's in quotation marks. Does anybody know where he's quoting from? Look at the footnote. Malachi. Yeah, this is from the book of Malachi. So many years after the events happened. Malachi, last book of the Old Testament. God says to Israel, look, I chose you from the beginning. Here's the proof. I loved Jacob and I hated Esau. That's where Paul is quoting from. Now, we've got to be careful here. When we think of the word hate, what do we think? Not love. not love. Yep. Despise. Is it ever a positive thing? No, of course not. 
And when, it's, when we think about it from our human perspective, how do we hate people? Reject them. Demean them. Um, is it ever justified for us to hate people? No, actually, not. not. Not at least not in the sense that we commonly think about hatred. So why is it okay for God to do that? And what does it even mean for God to do that? Well, let's listen. I've got a, a quote here that I think is very wise that can help us. We must not think about this divine hate as having those unworthy features which belong to hate as it is exercised by us sinful men. This is one thing you've got to always remember every time you read about God in the Bible. God is not a man. God is not even close to a man. Uh, God is not some bigger version of ourselves. That's wrong. God is God. That means he's in a category completely of his own. The way he does things is really not at all comparable to the way we do them. Except that we have to understand something about him, so he tells us by way of analogy what it is he's doing. A uh, great example about, of this that's really obvious to everybody do you know when you read the Bible and it says God took his hand and he reached out and by his hand he did things or his eyes were watching or his, he was seated upon the throne? Are we to read from that? Well, God has a body. It's just a really big body. And he, ha, you know, he really sits his bottom on the throne and he really has a hand that he stretches out. Are we to think that way about God? No, actually that's why the Mormons do. Uh, we don't think that they're right about that. We think they're overly, they're pretending that everything God says about himself is exactly the same in him as it is in us. When the reality is, God, according to the Bible, is a spirit. He has no body like men. He has no parts. He has no passions the way that we have them. He, he is God. He is completely eternal, unchangeable, immovable in his holy self. Totally different than we are. So when the Bible describes a hand or an eye or an arm or a, seat, a seated position upon the throne, it's speaking analogically. It's using an analogy that we can understand to describe what God is doing. Well, in the same way, when you talk about emotions, love, hate, things like that, he's using an analogy. You should not import everything about human hate and think, well, when God hates, it's just like that. Therefore, God's a villain. By the way, you also shouldn't think when God loves, he loves in the way that we love. Because what does that import into God? All kinds of bad ideas too, right? Because how do we love? Really selfish. Um, really selfish, really driven by um, passions. That is, you know, emotions or forces outside of ourselves that we can hardly control. We're just sort of swept up in it. Ain't nothing that sweeps God up at all. Uh, God is completely unchangeable, completely immovable. And so God's love and God's hate are describing true things, absolutely true things. And our love and hate are sort of the copies of it, but they're not exactly the same thing. And so we should not ascribe to God the things that sinful men do. In God's hate, there is no malice. There is no malignancy. There is no vindictiveness. There is no unholy rancor or bitterness. This kind of hate, thus characterized, is condemned in Scripture. We're not to do it either. And it would be blasphemy 
for us to say that God has hatred in that way. God did not hate Esau in those ways. That's not what it means. But, listen, this is a but, but there is a hate in us that can be an expression of the holy jealousy of God's honor that he feels and that he describes as hatred. Think about it. When is an occasion when we can hate something? And we're right to hate it. Sin. You ought to hate it with every fiber of your being. Parents, are there, is there anything you hate when it comes to your children? Not, not them, but when it comes to them. Lie. Yeah, yeah. When, when children do, do things that are, that are wrong and harmful, you hate it. What about when wrong things are done to them? Should you hate that? Should you hold back at all? Should you be absolutely 100% nothing held back opposed to it? Yes. That gives you a slight window into what the Bible means by God's hate. God chose, even though Jacob and Esau both deserved to be hated in that way. They were both sinners. They both deserved God's complete displeasure, wrath, and opposition. Because they sinned against him and against other people. Yet God sovereignly decided to show mercy instead of hatred to Jacob by his free unmerited grace. While also choosing to show the hatred, the opposition that Esau deserved to Esau. And thus in two different directions God carried out his purpose for both and for the whole world. And that is in a nutshell... The doctrine of unconditional election. That God in eternity has decided what will become of all things. God decides it because he knows it inside and out. He knows the, the, the future as well as the past as well as the present. But you've got to remember he knows it far more than we know it, right? Uh, we, can, we can foreknow certain things, right? For example, I could tell you exactly when the sun will rise tomorrow morning. And I might be able, with the help of Paul Delegato, to tell you what the weather will be like next Friday. But how did I come up with that? Figuring, right? Putting two and two together. God is some, he, he's not, he doesn't know the future just because he figures. God knows the future because future, as well as past and present, is entirely in his hands. Uh, in fact, there is nothing that is not in his hands. Remember we talked about, uh, I think we talked about this in here. Maybe I was talking to a different group, but there's a line, and on the top of the line is creator. On the bottom of the line is creature. And there's only one being that belongs at the top. Everything else is on the bottom. And everything on the bottom owes every aspect of their whole existence to the one at the top. There is no life or breath or anything without God upholding it. And so God knows the future because he upholds the future in eternity. Therefore, God knows what will become of each person. And God has determined to use the eternal destinies of people, and even of angels. Think about the fallen angels. The Bible also speaks about there being elect angels and fallen angels. 
Angels God chose not to fall. Angels God allowed to fall. God is using this to carry out his purpose. Alas, the kids arrive. And we're not even close to being done. And so I'll leave you with this. And then we, we can clean up, back clean up next week. I hate to leave you hanging like this. But you will be excused if you have thoughts like verse 14 and verse 19. Okay? When you hear this, if you think either of these two things. A, well, that's not fair. If you think that. Hey, welcome, good company. Paul believes almost everybody responds that way. Verse 14. Is there injustice on God's part? Um, Unfair. Tell me how this is fair, Paul. And and he goes on to tell them exactly how it is fair. And then, verse 19, you might think this. Well, then what does it matter what I do? If God's already determined it, it's already done, I can't resist his will, whatever. Paul also addresses that. Those are the two most common responses they always have been. To this teaching. By the way, if Paul meant to teach something else than what I'm saying by what he said in verses 1 to 13, if he was teaching anything else than what I said he's teaching, he would never have to raise these two objections. If all Paul meant was, hey, don't worry, God looks and sees that you would become a believer, so he chose you. And he looked and saw this other person would not, and so he chose not to save them. If that's all Paul meant, then why raise the flag about fairness? It doesn't make any sense, actually, because that seems to our human mind to be perfectly fair. There's something in what Paul's saying that makes the human heart rise up and say, unfair. Explain that, Lord. (laughs) And, And so I think that's a proof that Paul is teaching something profoundly mysterious, not just a God looked ahead and saw who would do what and decided to go along with it. No, God determined something before we ever existed and began to make our choices. Uh, And then uh, the second one as well, you know, that uh, no one would ever think to say, God, if you've determined everything, then what does it matter what I do? If all Paul meant was God sees what you are going to do and decides to confirm it. Well, then why in the world would you then have to say, why does he find fault? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. And so the common ways of trying to wiggle out of what Paul is saying, which are so common uh, in the church, just don't seem to hold up to what Paul is actually dealing with here. And the biggest thing is if we try to get off the hook, we're going to miss the value, which is what I said at the beginning and what J.I. Packer was telling us. The human soul needs to know its place. And until you realize, until I realize I'm in the hands of God to live or to die, I don't know my place yet. Wow. That's humbling. Come back next week for some more humbling. And, but also hopefully for some encouragement as I try to deal with those objections. And then I'll also begin to take us into the next uh, point about grace.